Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon, listeners. This is your host, Anthony Chen, with Family Business Radio. We have two great guests today for our episode for uh, great weather, uh, not too great, of July 2021. We have Chris Miller with North Fulton Wills and Andrew Walker with Brady Ware and Company. So starting off with our first great guest, Chris Miller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great. So kind of share with us uh, your story as to what got you into law and more specifically uh, estate law. So I started out in high school on the mock trial team and have been a wannabe lawyer uh, all the way through high school, college, and law school. I graduated from Emory Law School about 20 years ago and have worked my entire career here in the Alpharetta community. Um, started as a law clerk in 1998, graduated in 2000. I've set up my own shop in 2014 and have been focusing my practice on estate planning and estate administration. It's a great mix of working with people and also working with numbers. I get to help people individually as they're going through tough times, and I also get to help answer questions. So many people have such great confusion about estate planning and estate administration. What is a will? What is a trust? What is a power of attorney, and how do they impact my powers to act? Um, being able to teach each of my clients is why I'm doing what I do. It's what makes me get up in the morning. So as you're going through law school, was it something about a state law that made you fall in love with it? Or was it as you're going through your legal career that you touched upon a state law that you fell in? So it, it was during law school that, that I took all of the estate planning classes that they offered. I found that that really was the touchstone and, and where I could do the most benefit uh, for my clients. And also it was something that I enjoyed. It was a little bit different from corporate America where you're talking on the phone and, and you know, the almighty dollar is the, um, the motivation behind what you're doing with estate planning. Yes. You're worried about taxes. Yes. You're worried about how to transfer dollars. Um, but it is the people and the family relationships that really matter. That's what I'm able to focus on. And that's what I enjoy the most about the practice that I'm in. Now you mentioned uh, as falling in love with law itself back in uh, high school. Do you remember what the first class was and what the subject was about that? sparked your interest? Oh, gosh. It was freshman year of, of high school, and I believe the social studies or civics class had a, a mock trial event mm-hmm. um, where different roles were assigned to the classroom. That was also right about the time that my high school was forming a mock trial team, and I was able to join that and just practice being a lawyer on on the you know, the bench side of things. Mm-hmm. And do you, oh, well, I know we're going back a little bit further back in time. Do you remember what, what the case was or was it maybe also coincided with the state law? No, there, it, it was, um, gosh, that, that very first case was a personal injury case. Oh. 
and um, there was a plaintiff and a, a defendant. I believe I was the plaintiff's lawyer, mm-hmm. and of course we were playing up the uh, injuries and the damages, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how the client, who was my witness, mm-hmm. had suffered greatly at the at the hands of you know the negligent driver. Uh-huh. Well, then kind of fast forwarding time now into you mentioned a little bit about what people are either misunderstanding or have a lot of questions on what the wills are, what's a durable power of attorney. Um, can you explain to us, you know, what do these mean in terms of what you find people having a myth around and what they actually are? So one of the most common myths that um, I get asked all the time is if I have a trust, can I avoid probate using a trust? And it's true that property in a trust does not go through probate, um, but that doesn't mean that having signed a trust means all of your assets are in the trust. And so we often find that when a person passes away, their assets go through probate in part and are transferred outside probate in part. Let me back up and explain what probate is um, for for those of you who aren't familiar with it or, or have not gone through it. Probate is, comes from the same root as the word to prove. And a probate court really just has the job of validating a last will and testament that somebody has signed. So another myth that's out there is if I, if I sign a will, my will, I don't have to go through probate. And that's not the case. The probate court proves the validity of the will. It makes sure that any family member who has the right to object to the will comes to the table and has the right to say so. And it also makes sure that the will was signed with the right number of witnesses and designates the executor. You want to make sure that the person named in the will as the executor has the power to carry out all of the steps, Mm -hmm. right? So the probate court, once they approve the will, can step back and that's all that probate does in Georgia if the will waives inventory and annual returns. Now I'm getting into a little bit of the weeds of probate but a well-drafted will here in Georgia will waive the steps that are normally required to let the probate court know what's in the estate, to let the probate court know what you've done with the estate, to let the beneficiaries um, have a chance to review all of the accountings. My practice is to tell the executor, keep the beneficiaries informed of what's in the estate, what you're doing, and the process that that you're um, accomplishing towards getting the estate administrator. Essentially, what you're doing as an executor is collecting all of the assets that are subject to probate, figuring out what debts were owed by the person who has passed away and making sure that they're satisfied, filing the last tax return, and then splitting up the assets as you're instructed in the will. The will can say, Maybe all to spouse or maybe two kids or maybe a certain percentage to kids and a certain percentage to grandkids or other people. Mm-hmm. I want to focus a little bit on the difference between assets that are subject to probate 
and non-probate transfers because another myth that I hit is, well, if I have a will, the will controls everything that I own. And that's not the case either. When a person passes away, we have to look more granularly or more specifically at what assets that person left behind. Assets that are just in their own name without a beneficiary designation and without a joint owner on the day they pass away, well, then that's a good definition of a probate asset. That's controlled by the will if it's an individually owned asset. But there are lots of assets that people have that have beneficiary designations or are jointly owned, right? My wife and I own our house as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. And that means if I get hit by a bus, my wife will own the house as the surviving joint owner. And that transfer is not an action that goes through my will. It's by operation of law and the language in the deed that we hold, right? So you want to read the deed to the house that you own or any other property and figure out, A, is there a joint owner? And B, does that joint owner have the rights of survivorship that allows them to be the owner of the property if you pass away, mm -hmm. right? Um, bank accounts can be jointly owned, right? Life insurance and retirement accounts have beneficiary designations. And because of all those beneficiary designations and the joint ownership, all of those assets transfer outside the will. Mm -hmm. So when – a client comes and talks about whether or not we need probate. We have to sit down and, and take a look at the individual assets and figure out, is there a good enough reason to take the will to the probate court? Because if all of the assets transfer outside of probate, then no, you don't have to go through probate. Which kind of leads then to two questions. Uh, we can start off with, uh, Maybe it was a myth or not, you can correct me, but there's always a, lot, a great push towards avoiding probate. Can you explain to our audience as to what the pros and cons and why one should or should not avoid probate? Sure. So a lot of the push to avoid probate is advice directed to a nationwide audience because probate codes are not the same in different states around the country. It is worthwhile to avoid probate in Florida or California or New York because the probate codes there require the executors to jump through a lot of hoops in order to validate the will and to administer an estate. The courts take a much more active role in supervising executors in those states. Here in Georgia – the probate code allows people writing a will or testators to waive requirements of inventory and annual returns so that if the family is all cohesive and everybody agrees with what the will says and is comfortable with the executor serving, then probate is a very short process. You file the will at the probate court with a five-page fill-in-the-blank probate petition and the notarized consents of the family members entitled to notice. They're called heirs at law. So 
if I'm married and have two adult kids, then if I pass away, there are three heirs at law who will sign a consent form that's attached to the petition and goes into the court with a little filing fee and the original will. If you're able to produce the original will and have all the consents, some metro county um, probate courts turn around that petition within a week. Then the executor signs an oath and the court issues a document called letters testamentary. That's really the goal in probate court Mm -hmm. is the document called letters testamentary. And once you have those letters testamentary from the court, then the executor has the authority to collect all the assets and do all of their things. If the will was well drafted, then the probate court doesn't need any further involvement. The executor just needs to make sure that they're following the rules, making sure that the tax returns that are required get filed. All of those things are not related to the probate court and are not expensive. It's in many cases less expensive to file a will for probate in Georgia than it is to set up and maintain a living trust. And so when lawyers talk about setting up a trust, they're, they're charging money to, tra- to build that trust and then to transfer assets into the trust. And sometimes that's worthwhile, right? There are a number of good reasons to set up a trust, um, but it's not always the case that setting up a trust will save the family money. So it sounds more on an individual basis. It, it definitely is a case-by-case basis, right? Let, and let's talk through some reasons to set up a trust. Certainly, if you own property in multiple states, then you're probably over the line to where setting up and funding a trust with your multiple state properties is going to save more in probate costs than it takes to set up and fund the trust, right? If you have family members who are scattered around and don't have a good relationship with the decedent or the other family members, right, the black sheep in the family, then you might consider avoiding probate because with a trust, you don't have to notify those other beneficiaries in order to make the trust valid. But with a will, in order to go to the probate court, remember I said you have to get the consents of the the other family members or at least have them served by the court and they don't object to the probate petition. With family members that just want to be spiteful and harm the other siblings in the family, then they'll file a contest even without good cause, and that slows things down. It it messes up the probate. So where a a contest is likely or foreseeable, that's a good place where you would set up a trust. So a good segue to that, and as since we're, we have, this is all just personal property, we haven't even touched on the business side. So let's mm-hmm. kind of dab our toe into the business side. Uh, let's say an, an LLC is owned by one person or a married couple. Um, why does it need an operating agreement? An operating agreement is a, a document that spells out who is in charge of 
the LLC or limited liability company is another way to say LLC. The LLC is a very similar to a corporation. It is a business entity that is formed at the Georgia Secretary of State, but the articles of organization in an LLC don't have to spell out who the owner is or who's in charge or has the right to act on behalf of the LLC. And that's why you need the operating agreement. The operating agreement will identify who the members of the LLC are, and the members are the owners of the LLC, right? So if I'm just one person and I own all of the LLCs, then I'm a sole member or the single member of the LLC. I still need an operating agreement that associates me with the name of the LLC because the articles of organization don't do that by themselves. Mm -hmm. The operating agreement also identifies the manager and gives that manager the authority to do things on behalf of the LLC. Uh, For example, you want the operating agreement to say that the manager can borrow money on behalf of the LLC because banks want to make sure that the person signing the promissory note when they make a loan to the LLC – They want to make sure that they have the right legal recourse against the LLC if the payments on the promissory note aren't made. So they'll ask for an operating agreement, even on a single-member LLC. So uh, we were just even dabbing a toe on the family business side, personally, or just between spouses. What about non-related, just business partners? I imagine, would that complicate the situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. An operating agreement is another good place to include buy-sell provisions. Uh, Buy-sell provisions are language in the operating agreement that give one partner the ability to make an offer to the other partner for their property or for their share of the LLC. And you want to have rules about that because – Partners sometimes have disagreements. Um, Everybody goes into a small business with partners on a handshake and an idea and a commitment that we're going to make money doing this business. But if one partner has other distractions in their family or other businesses that they're, they're running, then partnerships go astray. And the operating agreement can have a set of rules built in in advance. Here's how we're going to split up fairly without us having to go to court and litigate how to divide the LLC's property. Mm -hmm. You are able to cut out with a well-drafted operating agreement a number of the claims that partners have against each other in a divorce situation. Ultimately, though, all the managers of an LLC can have fiduciary duties to all of the members in the LLC. So even with an operating agreement, you can wind up in court. There, it, again, it, it's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all to have an operating agreement. But it does provide the basis or the ground rules on which you're fighting which is kind of a good segue in terms of kind of creating a, 
a rail from the sounds of it to at least have some kind of guidance based on X circumstances coming up. You go, all right, we'll, we'll go with this route. Uh, well, then the next question is now pulling family back into, let's say, a disagreement or let's say, for example, uh, uh, some kind of unfortunate event happening to one of the business partners. And if their concern is wanting to protect their spouse, whether being bought out, as you mentioned, a buy-sell, or perhaps the spouse would like to continue collecting income from from that business. I mean, how would that play in part uh, overall in the planning process? So there are a bunch of different ways to work that out. Um, you want to have an open heart-to-heart discussion among the partners about whether the partners are comfortable working with other family members of the partners that they're in business with. If the answer is no, I really don't want to work with the surviving husband of my business partner, then we need to establish a buyout provision. We need to provide for a way for me as the surviving partner to acquire the interest or the membership shares from the estate of my partner if they get sick or pass away, right? And those buyout provisions, again, set the ground rules for doing that. Um, There are all sorts of creative ways to address this in a buyout agreement. Um, You can go into a business as a 50-50 partnership, right, where both managers or both partners have the ability to act on behalf of the business, and as long as the two of them are there, things are golden, right? Your operating agreement can then say, okay, upon the death or disability of one of the partners, then the partner has to leave 10% of their 50% to the surviving partner, and then the remaining 40% of their 50% can be owned by their family members, right? And that's a way to get at least a portion of your ownership share or the future profits into the hands of your family. Your family is going to have a minority interest. They won't have control over where the company goes and what the next company what the next steps of the company are. The surviving partner is going to have that 60% the 50% that they had plus 10% that they've inherited to carry on. And that is in some sense their compensation, right? And it's also their source of control, right? We can do a funded buy-sell agreement where life insurance is introduced and That makes a lot of sense because it brings liquidity and a a way to provide dollars to the estate of a deceased partner into the situation where you're trying to structure a buyout, right? If you and I, Anthony, are in a 50-50 partnership, right, I can buy a life insurance policy on your life and – I'll be the beneficiary of that policy and the owner of that policy. You'll be the insured party, right? And then you can buy a life insurance policy on me, right? You'll be the owner and beneficiary of the life insurance if I pass away. 
And then if I die, you'll have money to buy the partnership share from my estate. And we can sign in the operating agreement a covenant that says, I promised that my executor will sell you the ownership share for the amount of life insurance. Mm -hmm. And then we don't have to argue about the value of the business on the day we die, right? So if your life insurance policy on me has a $500,000 face value and my life insurance policy on you has a $500,000 face value, we can agree that $500,000 is the the cross-purchase price, Mm -hmm. right? That operating agreement then has a funding mechanism because – the life insurance will pay out on the event of the buyout and we can then set it up. The family gets their money and they go their separate ways, right? And the surviving partner has a hundred percent of the business mm-hmm. and can take that on its own, right? Of course that works if the life insurance face amount is roughly you know, proportional to the value of the company, Mm -hmm. right? One of the arguments that I've certainly seen happen is that two partners starting out as a business will have a very low valuation and a very small life insurance policy on each other, right? And as the business grows and develops over time, then the surviving family members who have the right to the buyout might say this is not a fair price. My my deceased family member had a 50% share of a company worth millions of dollars. What are you doing giving me only this piddling 500000 mm-hmm. And so even with key person life insurance, you haven't solved all the problems, but you certainly have introduced a way to make the transfer of assets a little bit easier at the death of one of the partners. Well, then kind of looking at, at a more positive note rather than since we're kind of revolving around succession planning of businesses. So let's say we, we fast forward time uh, on a more fortunate note where one of the business owners is looking to retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, h- how does one kind of uh, structure that and, and bring in the new business owner and what factors should the current owner take into account? So a, a great example is a medical technology firm that I worked with. It was owned primarily by an individual and he was 25, 30 years into his career and he had three key employees that he wanted to be the owners and the leaders of the company going forward. And so he entered into a sales contract in which he sold his interest to the company or yes, he sold his interest in the company to the other three buyers and they then committed to pay him a consulting fee for the services that he was expected to provide in the next three to five years, you know, regardless of where he was. He wasn't expected to come in every day. He could provide his services from the phone on the beach, right? Mm. But that's, consulting agreement allowed the buyers of the property to use the future earnings of the company to pay the retiring partner over time 
based on the value of, of his business. Of course, the the big question in that discussion was how do we value the business? What portion of the revenue and profits going forward should be directed towards the retiring partner and what portion of the future business and, and profits go to the three new owners, right, whose efforts were making the company grow. Um, by setting up that price as a fixed amount, we were able then to say to the new owners that any growth in the business, any future customers that you bring in and revenue that you bring in, you're going to be able to keep that, right? Because we've spelled out a specific amount or price that gets paid over time to the outgoing partner. Great. Well, can't help but it feels like we're really only just scratching the tip of the iceberg for both family-based estate planning and also succession planning specifically for businesses, especially when it comes to multiple partners being involved. So if for our listeners who want to learn a bit more in terms of demystifying the whole legal process on estate planning for families or succession planning and legacy planning for businesses, how can they best find you? Um, making a phone call to the office and, and scheduling a, a, a discussion with me, either in person or by video conference, um, is probably the best. My firm's phone number is 678-746-2900. That's the easiest way to get a spot on my calendar. The website, of course, has a, a contact us page where you can send me an email and, and then I can get in touch with you that way too. Great. And your website is? www.northfultonwills.com. So N-O-R-T-H-F-U-L-T-O-N-W-I-L-L-S.com. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Anthony. Now, for our next guest, we have Andrew Walker with Bradyware & Company. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you for coming on. So kind of share us with uh, your background as to your story of what got you into accounting. So uh, my story getting into accounting is somewhat interesting. It was mostly a, a bet or a challenge back in high school. Um, there were several electives offering, accounting being one of them among engineering and architecture to, to take one of these classes um, with a friend and you had to pick one. So we signed up to take an accounting class um, in junior year of high school. It's just basic intros. And the, the, the professor teaching it was a lady on the, the board of directors for a large company in the area, um, Lockheed Martin. And she made it just the most interesting class on kind of how accounting and entrepreneurship can help employees of a company as well as their investors and all the, the beneficiaries in the in the ecosystem. Um, and really, after that point, you know, we ended up taking more classes through high school in accounting. You know, one of those things you never would have thought happened. And when it came time to graduate, it was kind of clear to pick a accounting major Um for undergrad and just kind of stuck with it um, in high school or I'm sorry, in college was able to take on a controller job for a, a local small business, um, really get my feet wet in the industry and then kept pursuing my career. Um, that eventually led me to an internship with in public accounting with Bradyware. And that was about uh, 10 years ago and have been 
through various industries kind of ever since, helping companies navigate financial reporting, how to raise capital and achieve their goals of growth. Now, for, for the general public, they, there may be myths or stereotypes where they think all accountants are, are the same with bean counters with, with, a, with a pocket uh, protecting and all. Uh, I know there's certainly different specialties in the realm of accounting from forensics to kind of uh, just general bookkeeping. Uh, what is kind of your focus? Yeah, so we've moved a little bit past green visors and pocket squares. Um, my focus is mostly on construction and contract firms who are looking um, kind of towards a high growth model to get either bank money, um, various private equity type money, uh, all private businesses that want to make their business, their construction company more successful. Um, we do that through a various types of consulting engagements, um, kind of the nuts and bolts of our work or audit and review engagements. Um, a lot of people, when they hear auditors, kind of start thinking the IRS, and that's not the case. Our clients hire us to, to help them, although sometimes it can be a, a bit stressful for everybody. Um, we're a team that is in their corner really to, to help them sure up what they're doing when they go to a third party to help protect themselves. Um, and it's really a, a, a great way for them um, to, to advertise their business to a third party and, and be confident in what they're sharing with these other groups. So you mentioned having a focus into the contractors or construction companies. Uh, what got you or inspired you to kind of focus down that particular niche? Um, didn't have quite the revelation I had uh, back in high school that um, one of the beauties of public accounting is that as you're coming up through the ranks that you get to work in all different types of industries. Um, when I was younger, technology, manufacturing, um, medical companies were kind of all in the mix. But then as you kind of start settling in, um, contractors just became something that was really interesting um they 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 value your opinion it's it's really nice when you get to work with people who you can trust and then they trust you in return and the the industry has been booming um and it's they've there's always something fascinating going on and especially you know we've seen quite the um push towards renewable energy Mm -hmm. sectors and construction and it's just ever evolving even though it seems like something that's uh, pretty straightforward it's, it's a very complicated multifaceted industry so what are kind of the, the current marketing conditions for both the construction and contracting the, the current market's been really very hot kind of coming out of covid we saw a, a pullback in jobs back in march april um, but quickly kind of snapped out of that we've seen a sharp rise in almost everything but commercial office space Um, Most people are aware of the residential housing demand. Um, Home builders can build sites right now as as quick as they have the employees and the the resources available to do so. Um, And then that whole concept kind of created this this weird demand for materials um, that we haven't seen in in recent times. as well as a labor shortage. And that's really kind of been one of the the only controls of the throttle of the market is people's ability to, to get labor. Um, material costs have been very volatile. Aluminum lumber have been rising sharply. They're finally about 40% off their highs. 
But one kind of crazy idea is that in the past six months, lumber prices have actually been more volatile than Bitcoin, which is considered to be a very volatile currency. Um, Georgia's been really a, a great environment. Um, the state's been open exiting the pandemic. There's there's a lot of work going on. Um, our largest projects, a renewable project up in, in Georgia and uh, commerce. It's a battery plant that's a multi-billion, multi-year project that's creating um, hundreds of jobs and contracts for small businesses to facilitate fulfill as they continue to to work through these phases of completion so as we're seeing both really a huge growth opportunity but we're also kind of seeing some headwinds in terms of just volatile prices what, what do you what is the feedback what are you hearing uh from from the ground from your clients I, I think a lot of people are trying to pump the brakes um to control the volatility um futures are one way that my clients are protecting themselves against lumber and aluminum prices and other input. Um, but it, it's going to be a, a major concern as well as kind of opposition in the, in the political climate um, is directly affecting the, these prices. And at, at some point there's kind of a belief out there that supply and demand will sync up and get a little bit more back to a, a normal growth phase. But until then it's just going to be, consolidations within the industry um, as people try to rein in more control over the process, which will really kind of reshape things as we move forward. Well, as we're kind of hopefully coming out of the pandemic fully and getting, as you would say, a bit more towards a normal, um, what are some of the changes that you notice uh, for the past year and a half with industry? Well, I think we've really seen an improvement in the adoption of technology um, I know that's kind of a standard answer for for multiple industries, um, but there was just this huge acceleration of technology. Um, we've seen reduced equipment purchasing. I think business owners have a pretty good memory. They're going to remember March and April getting shut down for years to come. That was, you know, real scary. No one had control over the future of their business, which people have had for tens of years. Um, and, and overnight, it just stops. So businesses are collecting uh, more more cash to just kind of remain conservative, um, as well as creating a plan to adopt to correct the the labor shortage. That's going to be probably a, a topic that takes many years to to fix as the economy continues to grow. So, from the sounds of it, does it sound like more of the clients are now? taking more of a proactive approach or being more open to planning uh, as prior to the pandemic when it comes to these situations? I think there's more planning as well as a proactive approach. The The state of Georgia has adopted a new education program. Um, I think adoption of technology as well as education and, and job improvement is going to be kind of one of the easier ways to, to, to correct the issue uh, as well as kind of safety and benefits among the job. People want to work for companies who are looking out for them, as well as ones who are creating new sets of skills and providing them the education that they need to improve their career track. Uh, it's something that I think a lot of companies in the space have not always had to consider. Uh, and now it's going to be what separates 
employers is their ability to attract, train, and protect their employees as well as kind of propel their careers so that they can continue to provide a better life for their families. That kind of perfectly segues into kind of my next question is in terms of, as you mentioned, labor shortages and some strategies or, or planning to kind of get ahead of the problem per se to either just retain or, or attracting uh, employees. Um, for a contract or, or business right now, what is, if you were to advise them, what are the top two or three things you would point out really go to ways to be able to accomplish that? The first one is technology. That technology has a really a wide sweeping impact that, and it's multifaceted as well. There's the adoption of technology within the industry that allows people to do more with less. Um, automation is kind of a concept, especially in construction companies where they have a prefab shop and they're making um, parts and components before it hits the job site. How can we use machines to, to further advance this? And then there's technology in machinery that's out in the field. Um, I think we realized a long time ago that an easy way to attract the next generation is to buy having a high-tech job. Well, you can put high-tech in construction equipment. It's something that will solve the problem of attracting new talent. It makes the job higher paying because there's a certain skill set that will be required to, to operate these tech-enabled um, tractors and other pieces of equipment. Um, so that really is kind of killing two birds with one stone. You're making the job more efficient. You can complete the process quicker as well as you have a talent pool that you didn't previously have access to. And then I think another um, problem that's somewhat unique to the, the construction and contract industry is that the concept of job safety, a lot of times Within the, the small business, you'll hear people talking about high insurance costs. You know, roofers can't get insurance unless they join special groups. A lot of that's changing. Um, we, we understand the concept of safety. Uh, workers, when there's a shortage, that's the time to start thinking about how we can better help them. And job safety and increased training that we talked about earlier, that the training allows them to do their job more proficiently. But you can also provide them a skill set to continue to reach better quality jobs within the industry. And I think that's something that we've previously lacked but is a great way to, to attract people and keep them within the industry. We don't want to have an industry where we're just arming people with a skill set to go take elsewhere, but we need to keep them right here in our industry. Well, then looking at other opportunities uh, and brushed a little bit on, on the policies or political front, I mean, there's been talk about some kind of infrastructure package coming down the line. I mean, what impact do you see uh, coming to the construction or industry in general or in, more specifically in Georgia? And the infrastructure package um, is a, a huge bipartisan bill that's in talks right now. Um, probably the current consensus is that in some form that it'll eventually um, get passed over the next few years. It'll be a huge boost to, to small businesses within the state of Georgia. Um, the, the bipartisan effort most likely will include a provision that um, a certain high percent of all contracts that they'll make available in this infrastructure bill will have to be fulfilled by small businesses. 
um, which really will let everybody within the state get kind of a piece of these contracts as they start coming through. Um, one ill effect is going to be the difficulty of hiring when an infrastructure bill is passed. Um, it's not something that's new to the industry, but it'll be a certain challenge that will have to be overcome, um, as well as kind of a shift in, in education and investment over the next several years. Um, Georgia has a K-12 through uh, construction education plan. We'll see more plans like that continue to get funding um, just to make young kids of interested as well as um, have the education that they need to, to take these jobs. Um, and then there'll be a, a large trickle down effect through other sectors, uh, technology development, banking. Those are all industries that one of these infrastructure plans will kind of um, boost as well. So it, it'll have, a pretty major impact on, on any small business that kind of touches the industry and or works within the industry over the next several years. Great. Well, it sounds like you have quite the, uh, the pulse on the construction and manufacturing field itself. What, I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, given all these factors, what does it look like for the future for these business owners for the next two to five years out? Yeah, I wish I had a, a crystal ball, Anthony, that, you know, it's it seems like these events that can kind of curb our economy just happen overnight and they're they're really hard to see coming. Um, but if no major events aside, the, the, the future looks bright. Um, put in place contracts are up in almost every sector except for commercial office. And that's something that we could see come back pretty quickly. I think the money's out there to fund these projects. Um, a lot of it's just hesitation as we come out of the pandemic. What does the future of the workplace look like? As well as just a continued investment in technology. Um, there, there's no question that the workforce development is going to be the, the front of everybody's mind. And the efficiencies as well as the attraction to putting technology into construction will continue to fuel this movement as well as any kind of um, political interest within the sector, infrastructure, interest rates really can kind of control home building, as well as unemployment benefits and other um, kind of political and federal action items that we're seeing that small business owners don't have control over. Well, based on all the answers you're providing, it sounds like you guys are more than just uh, bean counters (laughs) and making sure the balance sheet counts. It looks like you're really... Um, advising your clients on being proactive in their planning, not just on the financial realm. That's right. We try to stay connected to the industry. Um, That's why we have industry expert groups that it's an an advantage that our clients, when they talk to us, um, they're not talking to Andrew, but they're talking to Andrew's hundreds of clients that can facilitate information that everybody has the ability to, to take advantage of and, uh, hopefully help them grow and be on their team as they achieve their personal goals with their business owners, um, their employees, and anyone that's within their ecosystem. Great. So, Andrew, for our listeners who are also in the construction or manufacturing field and they want to get a a glimpse of uh, your hundreds of clients in terms of experience and and pulse, and maybe, just maybe, a little bit of uh, insight with your crystal ball, uh, how can they best reach you? The best way to reach us is at www.bradyware.com. 
That is B-R-A-D-Y-W-A-R-E.com. And they can email me at awalker at bradyware.com. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. So you've heard it, uh, kind of the theme with today is a lot of change with uncertainty and being able to really plan ahead on a lot of unforeseen circumstances. If anything, 2020 has taught us quite a bit. Uh, so kind of bringing our guests back, uh, of course, after reading my uh, legalese here. So the two questions I would like to pose uh, for our two great guests here is the first would be, what is something post-COVID that was hard to bring up in terms of subject that clients or prospect might be a bit more resistant to, but after COVID, now they're all all over it. Now that they're finally wanting to have to engage that conversation, but now that they're finally caught up, which goes to the second question is, well, now they've caught up, what is something else that they should also be considering in terms of their planning? So this show is sponsored and brought to you by myself, Anthony Chen, with Lighthouse Financial Network, securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RIA, member FINRA SIPC. RIA is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of RAA. My main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at 631-465-9090, extension 5075, or best via email. It's just, just my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N, at LFNLLC.com. Now I'm bringing our guest back uh, with the two questions, uh, kind of a quick recap. First question is, what is something pre-COVID that was a hard conversation or topic to bring up for clients, but now after COVID, now they're just all over. They can't wait to have that conversation. Uh, Chris? The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, using a ventilator as a life expect, uh, extending uh, technique or med- medical technology. Um, a lot of what I do with business owners and individuals is make sure that they have a healthcare directive in place that names an agent to speak for them if they are incapacitated or unconscious. Uh, before COVID, um, the paragraph in that healthcare directive directing the use or non-use of a ventilator was something that was skipped over. Um, during COVID, we we talk about that ventilator paragraph quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, after COVID. People are saying, well, I want to make sure that ventilators are allowed in my healthcare plan. And the the answer, at least from my perspective as an estate planning attorney, is that you always have the power to request medical technology and consent to medical diagnoses, right? Mm-hmm. If you're unconscious or incapacitated, then your agent has the ability to do that instead. Mm-hmm. So – one area that, that we've talked about quite a bit uh, is the healthcare directive and the importance of having an up-to-date healthcare directive with the contact information of the agents that you've named written in there so that the hospitals know how to reach them. Um, as COVID prevented family visitations at hospitals, it was very important to make sure that the hospital nurses station had the contact information, the phone numbers and emails 
of the agents named to be in charge because they would have to reach out if something popped up. Mm-hmm. The family wouldn't automatically know. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Andrew, same question. What was something that was hard to bring up with clients and now there's one can't wait to bring it up to you? So everybody likes talking about their, their business and everybody um, believes that their business will continue and be profitable forever. Um, Pre-COVID, um, part of being a bean counter is being tasked with when we report on our clients as assessing whether or not they will be able to continue in business for uh, a year from the date we issue our report. Um, it used to be kind of a subject that was always received as a negative accusation instead of fulfilling um, professional standards and was something that the clients were just never excited to talk about and was often a a pain point for us and them. Well, when kind of COVID happened and the business landscape changed overnight, the feeling of invincibility kind of evaporated from the room, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, and, and now that, conversation is um, much more meaningful and gives us an opportunity to have an impactful conversation with our clients as to what their plan is for the next several years. Um, how can, can we help with their plan? Um, what, what are others doing? And they're now kind of excited to have those topics and maybe even proud to, to come to the table um, which used to be something that was never thought about and has, has been really kind of a, a great shift as we go about doing kind of the bean counter aspect of our job. And it's, I would say, kind of been positive. And as we exit the, the pandemic, I think we will continue to see kind of an appreciation for, for those around us that many of us may or may not have had going into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you're actually finally understanding the value behind it all. Right. Well, then going to our second question is now that these clients are more open and if anything, being more proactive on, on taking these foundational steps for their planning, uh, what is one other thing that they should now also take into account for uh, that they haven't yet? Chris? So um, Andrew did a great job of uh, alluding to the um, infrastructure bill um, that's working its way through Congress. And and one of my questions is how are we going to pay for that, right? Um, one of the things estate planners are keeping a very close eye on is the potential for changes in the estate tax. Mm. Um, I don't know where things are going to come out. Um, there are a lot of luminaries in the estate planning field who have great ideas and great predictions. Um, and I, I learned in 2005 not to predict what the estate tax is going to be because uh, Hurricane Katrina hit over the weekend and derailed the repeal of the estate tax. We we thought that the estate tax was going to be repealed and all of the votes in the House and the Senate were lined up. George Bush was president at the time. We We had that in the bag, right? Um, but then Hurricane Katrina hit and that topic of conversation disappeared. Uh, here we are 16 years later. We still have an estate tax on the books. It only impacts the top one quarter or maybe one third of 1% of, of people who pass away because the estate tax exemption is currently so high, but it might not stay high forever. 
It's funny that we have our state planning uh, attorney talking about bean counting in terms of the financial side. So speaking of switching to you, Andrew, what what is the one thing that uh, your clients should be taking into account for moving ahead? I think I'm going to throw it in Chris's direction. Um, one of the, the major oversights that we see amongst our clients is succession planning. Um, most business owners look in the, in the short term, but to run a successful business includes an exit, and business owners need to be planning for that exit. They need to get their, their trust and their wills in order. They need to figure out what are we going to do to prepare our business for an exit that small businesses are created to generate wealth for their family. Um, how can you best harness that? Um, we've heard in today's show um, talk from Chris about shareholder buyouts, valuations. These are all kind of topics that small business owners need to be thinking about, even if it's just one into three partners or you know, 10 to 100 partners, what does your exit from the business look like and how can you take advantage of it? Um, it's not something that can be solved overnight. The best runway is three to five years. Be thinking about how you can best capitalize on that. And obviously, we've talked about curveballs today that can affect these things, but um, the best way to be prepared is to, to make an action plan and be thinking about it and have an advisor in your corner that can help you achieve um, your goal. All right, great. Thank you for sharing. Well, you've heard it here from both our great guests, Chris Miller with North Phone Wills and Andrew Walker with Brady Ware & Company. So whether it be Hurricane Katrina or some kind of pandemic event that would cause one to finally uh, catch up to speed on topics we should be having a conversation about, but also many other things that we should also take into account going into the future. Well, that is today's episode. I'm your host, Anthony Chen with Family Business Radio.